Okay, First Kings chapter 6. At this point in First Kings, Solomon has begun construction of the temple. And when the main structure is complete, God interrupts the building project to speak to Solomon. Uh, he says, I'm with you in this, this Solomon. I will participate in the temple worship so long as you walk in my ways. And so with God's blessing in hand for this structure, Solomon now turns his focus to the inside of the building. And as we're going to see, everything inside the temple communicates one clear message. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So chapter 6, we begin in verse 14, right after God makes His promise and His challenge to Solomon to walk in His ways. It says in verse 14, so Solomon built the house and finished it. This is a reference to the base structure. The building is still quite plain at this point. Solomon begins to handle the decor in verse 15. It says, and he built the walls of the house within with boards of cedar, both the floor of the house and the walls of the ceiling. And he covered them on the inside with wood, covered them on the inside with wood and covered the floor of the house with planks of fir. And he built 20 cubits on the sides of the house, both the floor and the walls with the boards of cedar. He even built them for it within, even for the oracle, even for the most holy place. And the house, that is the temple before it, was 40 cubits long. So, what we have here is he's describing the fact that we learned before, you had these stones that he sets in place, you have the structures that are built, on the outside he covers them with wood paneling, and now we find out he's going to do the same thing here on the inside. It says that he, in verse 15, built the walls, or literally made the surfaces of the house with boards of cedar, and then it says both the floor and the walls of the ceiling, so the top and the bottom were all wooden It says he covered them on the inside with wood, covered the floor of the house with planks of fir. And then verse 16 says he built 20 cubits on the sides of the house, both the floor and the walls with boards of cedar. So here we're getting now to the holy of holies. If we could throw up that uh, picture of the, the, the big structure. I don't know. There we go. So you got the back room back there. That's the, the room he's talking about now, the walls that he put up around it, and he's mentioning it's basically that it's a perfect square. So the Holy of Holies is a perfect square. The holy place or the larger middle room, that one is not that way. He's dealing here where he says, verse 16, he built 20 cubits on the sides of the house. This is the Holy of Holies, and he explains it at the end here. He says, he built the 20 cubits on the sides of the house, both the floor and the walls with boards of cedar. He even built them for it within or on the inside. So again, outside was where we were before. Now we're dealing with inside. And then he gives two names for the Holy of Holies. He calls it the Oracle and the Most Holy Place. Again, the reason he gives two names for it is because he's emphasizing just how important this room is. Now, verse 17, and the house, he says, that is the temple before it or the room that's next to it, this is the holy place. And I know that can probably be a little confusing at times. The holy place is where you had the table of showbread, you had the golden menorah, and then you had the altar of incense, the golden altar of incense. And then the holy of holies, which we'll look at in a second, was important for a unique reason. But the idea of why it's explaining it as the holy place and then a most holy place is because the inside of the tabernacle was supposed to represent the throne room of God. 
So when we get to this place, you think, oh, okay, we've got a bunch of verses about putting wood on the stones. The reason that this is emphasized is because the stones would need to be covered up with wood so that, the, so that artwork could be placed on top of the wood to create a picture of God's throne. So I know it seems repetitive, and when you read through it, sometimes your eyes can glaze over, especially if you're reading like an old King James, you're like, I don't understand what half these words mean. The concept, though, is, is that this is not just a structure. It's a structure that's designed to paint a picture of something. So verse 18, we now get to the artwork. It says, and the cedar of the house within was carved with, Old King James says, knops and open flowers, all was cedar. There was no stone seen. So again, the idea here is you've got this area where it's carved. It says the cedar, the side walls and the ceiling. It says of the house, it was carved with these knops. This is just the holy place, most likely, not the holy of holies, because we're going to get different artwork described there. But when it says it was carved, it's not that they it's not that they carved pictures into the wood. This would be what we call bas relief, or I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, pronouncing it correctly, uh, bas relief artwork. And the best way to describe bas relief artwork is to look at a coin. Like, you know how if you pulled out like a quarter and you've got raised surfaces on your, on our, our coinage? That's what they would do. So they wouldn't carve pictures into the wood. They would carve into the wood to create raised pictures. So this is the idea here. They would carve around the spots where the images would be so that the artwork would be raised in the surface of the wood. So into this wood in the holy place, they carved, first off, it says knops, which would be gourds. These were egg-shaped fruit on vines, but they look like flowers. They're really pretty if you look at them. I look at them like I wouldn't eat that. I look at it and say that's beautiful. In fact, they're kind of dangerous if you eat them. They're very poisonous. So, but they were very pretty to look at. Secondly, it says it was carved with these open flowers. So, again, you've got this artwork in here. And then in verse 19, it says, and the oracle, the Holy of Holies, he prepared in the house within, and then it tells us why it's important, to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. He prepared this area literally means it was fashioned with a unique purpose. In other words, everything in this room was designed to fulfill one purpose, to hold the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it goes on to say in verse 20 that the oracle in the forepart, the Holy of Holies, was 20 cubits in length and 20 cubits in breadth and 20 cubits in the height. As I said earlier, the whole thing's a perfect square. And then he takes this wood paneling that's on the ceiling, on the sides, everything in the Holy of Holies, and he overlays it, covers it within with pure gold, he says. And so, he also covered the altar. The altar of incense is in mind here. He also made this wooden box, covered it with gold as well. Now, when it says it was covered with pure gold, it means that there was no other metals used during the melting to strengthen the gold. If you have a a jewelry that is gold, it's not likely all gold, because if you did, it would probably not keep its shape over time. Gold is a very soft metal, and so usually you alloy it with other metals. Pure gold is unalloyed gold. Now, we talked about this eons ago when we studied the book of Exodus, and we were going through the construction of the tabernacle, that gold was used to signify the majesty of God's throne room to speak of the fact that He alone is God, that He is distinct from all of His creation, that He is God. 
And so the gold, again, which is a very soft metal, it could not be melted with other metals to reinforce it because that would ruin the meaning. I think that's important because we need to be careful to not corrupt the Bible's explanation of God by adding our own ideas to Him. He created me, not me, Him. And while I am made in His image, I cannot fashion Him into what I want Him to be. How did God describe Himself to Moses when Moses said, whom shall I tell the children of Israel has sent me? And what did He say? I am that I am. He wasn't quoting Popeye. Does anybody even remember Popeye? Yeah, like four of you, so, yeah. He wa- I mean, this is not a human idea. This is, this is a God idea when he says, you know, whom shall I say has sent me? He says, well, tell them I am that I am has sent you. He is. We don't make him to be something. He is. In fact, that's what his name means. Jehovah means the becoming one, the one who is, the one who was and is and is to come. He is. And he becomes to his people what his people need him to be. But it's not who we make him to be. Now, I mentioned earlier it it references the altar here. The altar of incense would be placed right at the entrance to the Holy of Holies. And Solomon covered it with gold just like it was in the tabernacle. Now, the altar of incense was never used for sacrifices. You would never put a carcass on there. It was used to light incense, and it symbolized the prayers of God's people rising to the throne of God and being accepted by God. That's why you would put it right in front of the Holy of Holies. Now, it's really cool because we think of this imagery, and we're like, oh, okay, that's a neat reminder. But it's not just a neat reminder. Because when we get to the book of Revelation, all the way at the end of the New Testament, we see it happening. When angels begin to bring prayers to God's throne room in the form of bowls of incense. So yes, yes, there's some symbolism there, but it's not just symbolism. This is a picture of the throne room of God. And so the message is, is that when the priest would go in there with carrying the people on his heart and crying out to God on behalf of the people, he would understand as that incense is going up that God answers prayer. God does hear our prayers. Do not ever doubt that, and don't ever give up when you're praying for something. I had this week in particular two things that I've been praying for for a while that God answered. I, I, I mean, I still need to grow in my confidence in prayer, of course. I say, oh man, I really trust the Lord in prayer now, and then God will throw something my way and be like, all right, well, let's grow you some more. But the truth is, is that when I compare my confidence in prayer now to what it was 25, 30 years ago, there's a vast difference. I remember I had a friend of mine, and when we would be out and about, and he'd be sharing the gospel with somebody, or he'd be trying to encourage another believer we'd met at a restaurant or something, he, he would almost always ask him, you know, how can I pray for you? And after they tell him, he would say, I'm going to pray for you, and, and you need to know something. My God hears my prayers. We hear prayer in particular being so derided. What good are prayers? Do something. Really? (laughs) We've been trying to do something as a nation for how many years, and how far is it getting us? And yet Solomon, in just a few chapters, will pray, Lord, if Would you please, if we turn to you in this place, would you hear our prayers? And God will say, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. I will hear from heaven. 
and I will heal their land. Now, I realize that particular promise does not apply to the United States. That's not what I'm saying. My point is, is that prayer is powerful. Prayer works. And we can pray with absolute confidence knowing that He hears and that He is working. I tell people, I say, I'm going to pray for you. And I said, I'll tell them, I say, God is seldom early. I said, but I know He'll never be late. I, have, I will tell people, I have, I have no fear at all that God's going to come through for you in this. And it's so cool to watch Him answer. Verses 21 and 22, we get to the entrance of the Holy of Holies. It says, so Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold, and he made a partition by the chains of gold in front before the oracle, in front of the Holy of Holies, and he overlaid it with gold. And the whole house he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the house. Also the whole altar that was by the oracle he overlaid with gold. So here again, it mentions this partition. So the way that the Holy of Holies is constructed is you got this square room, and then you got an opening in the front of the square room. And you can see it a little bit up in the picture. If I wasn't silly and forgot my pointer, I could point it to you, but that's going to be a bother me all night. So you're just going to have to go with me. This area, this partition is just a, a travel through. It's an entrance into the Holy of Holies. And covering it are these chain links, these chain golden metal links. Now, these chains would be beautiful, dangling in front of the entrance to the Holy of Holies, but they would also make it clear that a person couldn't just walk in. Like if you have a chain on something, it means do not enter. And so, yes, it would be beautiful and glorious and convey this idea of the uniqueness and the majesty of God, but it would also be a warning. Nobody just walks in here. You need to stay out unless certain terms are met. Now, as it mentions here that the entire inside of this, not just the Holy of Holies, not just these chains, but the whole house, the whole holy place as well is covered in gold. The idea is you wouldn't see wood and you wouldn't see stone anywhere, just gold everywhere you looked. Again, God's distinctness and uniqueness are emphasized everywhere you looked if you walked inside the temple. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, though that's what the Holy of Holies was designed for, is to house the Ark of the Covenant. That's not the only thing that was in the Holy of Holies. Verse 23, and within the oracle, he made two cherubims of olive tree, each 10 cubits high. And five cubits was the one wing of the cherub, and five cubits was the other wing of the cherub. From the outermost part of the one wing unto the uttermost part of the other were 10 cubits. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both the cherubims were of one measure and one size. The height of the one cherub was ten cubits, and so it was in the other cherub. And he set the cherubims within the inner house, and they stretched forth their wings of the cherubims, so that the wing of one touched the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their wings touched one another in the middle of the house. And he overlaid the cherubims with gold, and he carved… Well, we'll stop there. So these cherubims here, cherubims are special angels who are constantly around God's throne. So this is the holy place right here, this room. This is the Holy of Holies in here. That's that partition. You can't see the metal chain links, but they would be across the door right here. So the Holy of Holies is right here, and you can barely see the cherubim on the sides here. I don't know if that's an accurate representation of them. But the cherubims, remember, they are special angels that were constantly around God's throne. 
So uh, when we see in the book of Revelation, we see them crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They are covered with eyes on the front and on the back, and they have six wings. Those are the cherubim. So these guys are depictions, uh, the things that Solomon makes are depictions of those angels who are right there in, at the throne of God. Now, the ones that Solomon makes, they're roughly 15 feet tall. A cubit is about, about a foot and a half, 18 inches, roughly. They determined it was from here, your, the middle of the inside of your elbow, all the way to the middle finger, end of your middle finger. It's roughly about 18 inches. So if you have a structure that's 10 cubits tall, it's 15 feet tall. Now, the cherubims would face the entrance to the Holy of Holies. So, if you came walking up here, you'd see the Ark of the Covenant in the middle, and you'd see one angel here with his wings like this, and you'd see another angel here with his wings like this. And that's where you see all the language in there about one wing touches the wall and the other two met in the middle. So, that's, that's the explanation that the writer is giving here of how Solomon did this. Now, In addition to that, it mentions the artwork in verse 29 and 30 here in the Holy of Holies. And he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubims and palm trees and open flowers within and without. So in the walls that would be in between, like these walls here, both sides of them would have these different carvings than what you would have seen in the holy place. Remember the holy place, it had these alternating gourds and open flowers, a flower that's budded. You'd have artwork like that. But in the Holy of Holies and on the walls just outside the Holy of Holies, it had these different things here. So the flowers now would be joined by carvings of these winged angels and then also the palm trees. Now, again, the reason for the winged angels in there is, well, now you're at the throne of God. There's cherubim all over the place, right? So here, in addition to that, we find the palm trees. Now, Ezekiel 41 verse 9 tells us that there were two palm trees for every angel carving. The angel would have a lion face toward the one palm tree and then a man's face toward the other palm tree. Again, this is extremely similar to the description of the cherubim that John gives in the book of Revelation. Uh, The reason the other two faces are not mentioned that John mentions here is because you can't depict that. Looking side to side to the palm trees, you can't look forward and backwards, so the artwork only shows those two faces. So we say, well, they don't look the same. Yeah, there's a reason for it. We have to think it through and look at the practicalities here. There's no way to depict the front and the back of the face in this way. So, The angels, again, are there to convey the concept that if you go any farther, you are approaching the very presence of God, where angels are constantly flying around Him. Well, what about the palm trees? Well, the palm trees, they're a symbol for the nation of Israel. The palm tree represented the fact that under the right terms, Israel could approach this holy, all-powerful, one-of-a-kind God. Now, palm branches they also have something they represent because palm branches in the Old Testament were often used as a picture for the Messiah. So as you're walking up here as a priest, you see the carvings of the the fruit and the flowers and, wow, this is wonderful that I'm here. But then as you get closer, you see the golden chains, you see the cherubim, and you see the palm tree. And you're reminded of the fact that I can't go any further unless certain terms are met. Well, the right terms that God set up for Israel to approach Him was the sacrificial system, and in particular, 
the high priest would only go into that entrance on the Day of Atonement. Well, the Day of Atonement points to the promise of the Messiah who would one day take away our sins. And so every time the priests would approach this room, they would also be reminded to think forward in faith to the prophet like unto Moses that was promised to come. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, it says very clearly here that someone was coming. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, it says here, and I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Well, that's Jesus, of course. Jesus is the one who would come and would speak freedom over us through the cross, tearing the veil in two so that all who put their trust in him could enter into God's very throne room. We see this reflected in the words of the writer of Hebrews when he says, therefore let us come boldly because we have a great high priest who is touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, our infirmities. It says, let us come boldly before his throne of grace so we might find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. So it was a constant reminder of the promise of what was coming. Well, verses 31 and 32, we're going to look at the doors to the Holy of Holies. And for the entering of the oracle, he made doors of olive tree. The lintel and side posts were a fifth part of the wall. So in other words, these doors were six feet wide. That they were made of olive. Olive tree is still used in wood carvings in Israel today. Expensive ones, I might add. The wood is very unique, and it's very pretty. If you've ever seen something made with olive wood, it has a distinct both texture and visual appearance to it that makes it unique. When it talks about here the lintels and the side posts, it just means the hinges and the door frame, that all of them, it says that they were spread with gold. The two doors were also, verse 32, of olive tree, and he carved upon them the carvings of cherubims and palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold and spread gold upon the cherubims and upon the palm trees. Verse 33 through 35, we now move, we're going to move way out. We've been dealing with this room right here. Now we're going to move out to the doors that were between the entrance area, the little lobby here, and then to the holy place. The doors are described in verses 33 through 35. So also made he for the door of the temple, so the door of the holy place, not the holy of holies, posts of olive tree. It mentions these are a fourth part of the wall. So these were a foot and a half wider than the doors to the holy of holies. And Therefore, clearly, the size difference implies that there's more access to this room than to the Holy of Holies. It's bigger doors. There's more access to this room than to the Holy of Holies. And that's true. All the priests were welcome to come inside. This is where they would serve by putting the showbread in there, or they would light the candles. As we'll see in the temple, there's more than one menorah, but in the tabernacle, there was one. They would have to keep that lit, and they would put the incense on the altar of incense. So they were welcome to come in there. There was nothing forbidding them from doing that, but it wasn't open to everyone. No Israeli could just walk in there. You had to be a member of Aaron's family. Well, it goes on to explain. It says in verse 34, and the two doors were of fir tree. The two leaves of the one door were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding. And he carved thereon cherubims and palm trees and opened flowers and covered them with gold fitted upon the carved work. I don't know why. I don't know why it mentions here that they they had, basically when it says the leaves were folding, it means you had a top half of the door that opened and a bottom half of the door that opened. 
So I don't know if that was like you maybe kept the top part open because of the incense and stuff, or maybe to communicate. The Bible doesn't tell us why they did it that way, but it was one of those doors that wasn't just one big door. It had a top half and a bottom half. So to get in, you'd have to open them both, but maybe if you just wanted to heckle the guy out there doing sacrifices, you could just open the top door and make a wisecrack and go back in. Probably not doing that, just trying to keep you awake. I think it is interesting, though, about these doors, these larger doors that the priests could access any time, but the smaller doors where they could only go under certain terms. I think it's important to realize in this that the priests and Jesus, our great high priest, is they're different. In other words, there are people who have influenced our lives, but Jesus is our great high priest, and He alone is our mediator. He alone is the one who who brings us to the Father. No man, no woman does that for you and me. Jesus alone does that for us. Verse 36, and he built the inner court with three rows of huge stone and row of cedar beams. And the fourth year was the foundation of the house of the Lord laid in the month of Ziph. And the eleventh year in the month of Bul, which is the eighth month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof and according to all the fashion of it. So he was seven years in building it, the temple. Lastly, it mentions here this area all around here. You can barely see this raised area here. So this is the, the outer court. That's what's being described in verse 36. He built the, they call it the inner court because it's not pictured here, but if you, there was actually a wall here that enclosed this area, just like you see over here. And outside would be the court of the women. So it's not depicted there, but that's why he calls it the inner court. The court of the women uh, would also be an area where the Gentiles could gather. Uh, so that would be a, the outer court. So it just mentions here, it was built with three rows of huge stone. So it was three stones on top of each other, and then topped with this row of cedar beams, a, a kind of a wood covering on the top. So it was not super tall, but it did provide some type of barrier from anyone just walking inside. All of this took seven years to build, it tells us, which means it was a massive project. But as we get to chapter 7, we're going to see it was not quite as massive a project as Solomon's own palace. Chapter 7. You can take that picture down now. But Solomon was building his own house for 13 years, and he finished all his house. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. The length thereof was 100 cubits, the breadth thereof 50 cubits, and the height thereof 30 cubits upon four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams upon the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the beams that lay on the 45 pillars, 15 in a row. And there were windows in the three rows, and light was against light in three ranks. And all the doors and posts were square with the windows, and light was against light in three ranks. What's fascinating is you try to find pictures of the temple anywhere you, find, you can find them easily. Try to find a picture of Solomon's palace. You're not going to. No one cares because it doesn't have any spiritual significance. But the writer wants to lay out just how prosperous Solomon was, just how wealthy God had made him, and we'll explain why in a second. But it starts off by saying in verse 1 that it took him 13 years to build it. Then in verse 2, it begins describing the various parts of his palace. When it says here he built also the house of the forest of Lebanon, it doesn't mean he built another building somewhere else. He is explaining that this structure was attached to the palace but had a different function. The fact here that it was the house of the forest of Lebanon, we know what this building was because in Isaiah 22.8, he references this 
this building, and he explains that it was Solomon's armory. So the house of the forest of Lebanon was Solomon's armory. Now, why would you name it the forest? Well, the reason it was named the forest was because when you walked inside, what we read here in verse 3, that it was covered with cedar above the beams that lay on 45 pillars, 15 in a row. So you'd have three rows of these columns that basically held the structure up, three rows of 15 columns, and they were depicted, they were constructed in a way that they looked like trees. So the the thought is, is that when you walked inside, you would see these three rows of columns that looked like trees, and a roof that sat on it made of the same wood, it basically made it feel like you were walking into a massive forest. So that's why they called it the house of the forest of Lebanon. It was a huge structure. It gives us all the dimensions here, but it's not the temple, so I'm not as interested as going into it. It tells us that there were three rows of windows, and they were exactly opposite of each other for light to get in. Mentions that all the doors and the posts were square, as well with the windows, and light was against light in three ranks. So just explaining this building to you. Verse 6 explains another building. It says, and he made a porch of pillars, or literally he made the pillar hall. The length thereof was 50 cubits, the breadth thereof was 30 cubits, and the porch was before them, and the other pillars in the thick beam were before them. So this pillar hall here, we don't know what it was used for, but it had another area out in front of it that served as a lobby. That's the porch that's in front of it. And this lobby or receiving area in front of it, it also had an overhang that was not closed, basically a projecting roof, but not enclosed in front of the lobby. So you walked up, if it was raining, you got, you could be under the porch, you could be in the lobby, in the waiting area, if it was full, you could hang out under the porch or to get some air or whatever, you could be there, but then you'd go into the receiving area and then whatever the pillar hall was used for, when you were invited in, you'd go inside. Verses 7 and 8 describe Solomon's judgment hall and his living quarters. Then he made a porch, which just means another room or another hall, for the throne where he might judge or settle disputes, even the room of judgment, the porch of judgment. And it was covered with cedar from the one side of the floor to the other. So this was very likely probably the place that Solomon gave official proclamations. Now, verse 8, and his house where he dwelt had another court, another area where it mentions that it was of light of the like work. Everything in all these buildings looked the same. Solomon made also a house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken to wife that was like unto this porch. So it tells us here that Solomon's style for the entire palace was to give it the appearance of a massive forest no matter what room you went into. So this makes Solomon the very first real-life elven king. Again, trying to keep you awake. Now, the fact that Pharaoh's daughter had separate living quarters might seem weird to you, but even tent-dwelling nomads back then had a separate section of the tent that was assigned to the women in the family. It was usually the innermost portion of the tent, and so Solomon does the same thing for his palace. So you've kind of got off to the side, you got the, the armory, then you've got this pillar hall, we don't know what that's for, and then you had the judgment hall next to it, and if you would go There were doors that led through the judgment hall to his personal living quarters, and then likely behind that you had where his wives lived, or at this point in time, just Pharaoh's daughter. Some suggest, well, that building must have been the biggest, because it would have to be to accommodate Solomon's 700 wives and 300 concubines. Well, when Solomon first builds this, he doesn't have any of those ladies in his life yet. 
The Scriptures do not mention any wives at this point except for Pharaoh's daughter and his first wife. In fact, it is possible his first wife isn't even alive right now because she's not mentioned anywhere from this point forward. Verse 9, the writer next explains that Solomon spared no expense for this luxurious building project. Verse 9, all these were of costly stones, rare and precious gemstones. According to the measures of huge stones, they were sawed with saws, within and without, even from the foundation unto the coping, the, the foundation all the way up to the eaves of the roof is what that means. And so on the outside toward the great court. And the foundation was of costly stones, even great stones, stones of 10 cubits and stones of 8 cubits. You'd walk in and it wouldn't just be like whatever you might picture a stone to look like. You had these rare gems that had been carved into the, the foundation of the place. It was pretty ornate. It mentions, goes on, verse 11, and above were costly stones after the measures of the huge stones and cedars. And the great court roundabout was with three rows of huge stones and a row of cedar beams, both for the inner court of the house of the Lord and for the porch of the house. So, in other words, like the temple, the palace of Solomon had an outdoor uncovered court area that was surrounded by a low wall. And the wall was the same, just width as the temple courtyard wall. So the idea is there was a lot of similarities in these two building projects that were going on at the same time, with the exception it took Solomon much longer to build his palace. Now, there are some who suggest that Solomon's priorities were out of order based on the fact that it took almost twice as long to build his palace as it took to build the temple. While we should put God's call before our own projects, I don't think that's fair to Solomon because the temple was nowhere near the size of Solomon's palace. In addition, the temple did not need to house people. The only thing it needed to house was a little box, the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody else who worked in there were temporary residents. They wouldn't sleep there. So it didn't need more space, but Solomon needed a lot more space. Now, if there is a lesson to be learned, it might be this. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, God told the kings, don't do this. And he says this, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Listen, there is absolutely nothing wrong with having a nice house. But this was a government project accomplished by forced laborers. Did Solomon really need all this for his own house? Did he really have to use God's people this way? When we see the reaction to Solomon's death, the people are very weary. That was not their reaction to David's death. David used forced laborers, but there was something about how Solomon used them that the people resented it. So, prosperity and success didn't change David, but apparently it did change Solomon. Wealth doesn't have to change a person. In fact, I know many wealthy believers who haven't changed a bit as their financial lives improved. But wealth or the allure of wealth can be a very difficult temptation. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, Paul speaking to Timothy about how to pastor his church, he tells him, listen, in having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. That's 1 Timothy 6, 8. But they that desire to be rich 
fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Why? For the love of money is the root of, King James says, all evil, but literally all kinds of evils, which while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's a heavy warning. Paul will remind Timothy again in chapter 6, warn those who are rich. There is a reason, because with wealth can come the temptation to pursue things that we should not be pursuing. Instead, no matter how much you have, all of us should be pursuing contentment. That should be our pursuit, contentment. Well, at this point, the writer moves on from building projects to the other things Solomon needed to do to open the temple for use. So, 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 13, and I will move a little bit more rapidly here because some of it is repetitive. Verse 13, and King Solomon sent and he fetched Hiram out of Tyre. He was a widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in brass. And he was filled with wisdom and understanding and cunning to work all works in brass. And he came to King Solomon and he wrought all his work. Now, this is not the king of Tyre. Remember, his name's Hiram as well. This is a different individual. He's an Israeli. He's actually not a Gentile. He has a Gentile dad, but he's not a Gentile. And this is the guy who is going to oversee the detail work on all the other things required for the temple to be opened for everyday worship. So verse 15, we begin seeing what he starts doing. And can we put that first picture back up again? The first thing he begins describing here is these two guys, these two pillars. It says in verse 15, for he cast or he shaped two pillars of brass of 18 cubits high apiece, and a line of 12 cubits did compass either of them about. These two pillars or columns that were made, it mentions first off here that they were shaped from a different metal. Up to this point, all we've been working with is gold. Now we see that we're working with brass. Now, you will only see gold inside the temple, and you will only see brass outside the temple. The reason that the metal changes is that while gold symbolizes God's majesty and deity, brass in the Scripture always symbolizes judgment. In other words, everything out here reminded you that if you want to get in here, sin has to be judged. Sin must be dealt with. If you walk in there and sin has not been dealt with, it's going to go bad. Now, these two columns here, it mentions that they were about 27 feet high. They were circular in shape, as you see there. I don't know if they looked exactly like that, but they were circular in shape, and it mentions how their circumference was that you could take an 18-foot thread. That's what that word line means. You could take an 18-foot thread to go around its circular width. The top and the bottom of the column, however, as you can see on the picture, were larger, verse 16. And he made two chapiters, or these were tops for the column, of molten brass, which is set upon the tops of the pillars. The height of the one chapiter was five cubits, and the height of the other was five cubits. In other words, they're saying they were the same size. Now, 
These were just under eight feet high, and it mentions in verse eight, 17 that they were covered in like this metal mesh and links and other artwork. Verse 17, and there were nets of checkerwork and wreaths of chainwork for the chapters, which were upon the top of the pillars, seven for the one chapter and seven for the other chapter. I see that word, and it's always weird to, to say it. But the idea is you could barely see the depicted artwork up here. There were seven sections of this meshwork that was placed upon the top of these toppers. Verse 18, and he made the pillars and the two rows round about upon the one network to cover the chapters that were upon the top. It mentions with pomegranates. And so he did for the other chapter. And the chapters that were upon the top of the pillars were of lily work in the porch four cubits. And the chapters, verse 20, upon the two pillars had pomegranates also above. Opposite the belly, which was by the network, and the pomegranates were 200 in rows round about upon the other chapter. So, at the bottom, at the top of these things is where you'd have the intricate meshwork of metal, and then at the bottom of them, you had all these little pomegranates carved into the metal. It also was that way on these little bottom parts as well. Now, what's the significance of a pomegranate here? Well, the pomegranates were actually an ornamentation dangling from the bottom of the priest's robes. They would have a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate. Now, the bell was there for, if you stopped hearing the bells chiming, it meant something bad happened. When he's moving around doing his work, you'd hear the chimes of the bells banging against the pom- The little pomegranates were just like thread puffs. They're not real fruit, but they were woven in the shape of a pomegranate. And the idea is it would dull the sound of the bells a little bit so it just wasn't irritating. But if you stopped hearing the bells kind of working, it meant somebody go check on Bob. I'm not sure he went in there with the right attitude. Again, just like the brass, judgment needs to happen first. These pomegranates served as reminders. Nobody can just walk in, and not everyone can walk in. Only the priests were permitted inside. Now, the full purpose of the columns is found in the names that Solomon gives to them, verses 21 and 22. And he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple, and he set up the right pillar and called the name thereof Jachin, and he set up the left pillar and he called its name Boaz. So, everybody, meet Jachin. Say hi, Jachin. Hi. <laughs> you didn't have to do that. And then there's Boaz right there. <laughs> you guys are playing along, though. You're awake. Good. The word Jachin, it means he shall establish. Boaz means in strength. So some people have summed up these two pillars as in the word strength and stability. In other words, God's promise to participate in the temple worship was contingent upon Solomon and Israel's obedience to his law. Solomon's declaration through these pillars is that the strength and the stability of this temple rests upon God being involved in it. If God is not involved in it, it is just a useless building. There is nothing special about all this ornateness if God is not here. Therefore, we need to deal with our sin correctly, and we need to fear the Lord. Now, while we operate under a better covenant through Christ's work on the cross, there is still a truth here. Our strength and our stability rests in Christ alone and in the cross alone. Amen? That's where our strength and our stability lies. If you're going to try to look to yourself to find assurance of your salvation, good luck. 
Because there will always be reasons to not be assured if you look at yourself. If you're going to look at yourself for stability in your life and in your walk with the Lord, good luck because there's always going to be deficiencies. On the other hand, there's no deficiency in Jesus. And he keeps his promises even when we don't keep ours. He remains faithful even when we are faithless because it's who he is. He can't deny himself. Verse 23. We get to the next piece of utensil he's going to make. And he made a molten sea, a metal sea here. It just means a metal-casted washing container. He made this metal-casted washing container. It mentions it was 10 cubits from the one brim to the other. That's a 15-foot wide bathtub. And it says it was round all about, and the height thereof was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits did compass it around. So it's much wider than the pillars. This large washing container, if you were reading in the book of Exodus for the tabernacle, it's called the brass laver. The brass laver was used by the priests to wash up after the butcher work uh, that was required for the sacrifices. Um, I have never butchered an animal, but if you have, you know it's, it's, not, it's not for the dainty, okay? I mean, it's messy work. And so they would use this to wash up after they would do the sacrifices because they'd be working hard butchering animals all day. This one, though, is much more ornate than the one that was in the tabernacle. It was 15 feet wide, and it was just under 8 feet high. The circumference of it was 45 feet. Now, we keep reading, and we learn about what held it up. It says in verse 24, it didn't have legs. It says, under the brim of it, round about, there were knops compassing it, so you had these little gourds carved into it, ten in a cubit, surrounding the sea round about, and the knops were cast in two rows when it was cast. In other words, they weren't added afterwards, but when he first shaped this thing from metal, he carved it into the metal, shaped it into the metal when he first made it. And then verse 25, it tells us it didn't stand on normal legs, but it stood upon 12 oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, and three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. And the sea, or the wash container, was set above upon them, and all their hinder parts were inward. So we could we put it back up again one more time? I think this will be the last time I referenced this picture. But you can see it right here. This is the washing area, and you can barely see the little little oxen there, but you had three here, three there, three there, and three on the back with their behinds in the middle and their faces uh, outward, and that was what took the place of the legs, and they were facing in all these cardinal directions. Then it just tells us how thick they were. It mentions here in verse 26 that it was a handbreadth thick, so the whole bowl was three inches thick, so not very thick. It mentions that it was wrought like the brim of a cup, with flowers of lilies. And then it tells you how much water could go into it. 2,000 baths. That's about 40,000 liters of water. This is a bit overkill, so Solomon decides to make a bunch of smaller washing carts for more practical use, and I've got to wrap this up quick. So let's go ahead and put one more, the second picture up there. These are the little washing carts, okay? Now, what's really funny to me is all the things we've studied so far, we get 13 verses on these puppies, 13 verses here on these puppies. So I'm going to move relatively quick because it is fairly repetitive here. So verse 27, he made these 10 bases of brass. The word bases just means water carts. He made these 10 water carts from brass. Again, everything outside speaks of judgment. 
Four cubits was the length of one base, and four cubits the breadth of it, and three cubits the height of it. So it's a perfect square again. It's not quite as tall as it is wide and long. Verse 28, and the work of the bases was on this manner. They had borders, and the borders were between the ledges. In other words, the sides and the bottom, that's what he means by the borders. And ledges, it means that inside it's not open, but it's actually something there to catch the water. Again, the reason that they needed to wash up was because sin had to be judged. There is no salvation, there is no entry into the presence of God without the cross. None. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved except who? Jesus, right? I emphasize this because it is becoming more and more popular in churches today to deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ. More and more often we're hearing, well, that's an ancient idea or it's a barbaric idea. But the Bible is clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. When we take away the need for atonement, we take away the seriousness of sin. And when we take away the seriousness of sin, Christianity becomes just another religion. What is one of the most common things you will hear from people when you try to share your faith with them? One of the most common things you'll hear is, well, I just don't think God's a good God if He sends people to hell. These are things sometimes you may have conversation with your kids about. My wife was having a conversation with one of our kids the other day about this, and they were saying, well, I just don't see how that's fair. And I love my wife. She looked at the individual and said to them, and said, so, you who are only this many years old and have only seen this much of the world and have only learned this much in your life are able to determine better than anyone else, including God, what's just and fair and right. That's not arrogant at all, is it? And yet we have grown men and women who would say the same thing. I expect it from a child because a child's born with pride. But as we get older and we become acquainted with our own inadequacies, our own failures, it should humble us. And yet we harden our hearts and somehow say, this is a a common atheist argument today. I'm more righteous than God. I'm a better dad than God is. He killed his own son. I would never do that to my kid. Religion, other religions have no problem saying sin exists. In fact, if you're a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim, they'll talk about sin. But each of those religions come up with a way for man to overcome sin by his own achievements. The Bible alone testifies of the need for a mediator, for someone to take our place to make us right with God. And to abandon that truth is to abandon the heart of Christianity, to abandon Jesus. I'll keep reading. Verse 29, and the borders that were between the ledges were lions, oxen, just describing the artwork and cherubims. Upon the ledges, in other words, upon all these areas, you see the artwork there. Verse 30, and every base had four brazen wheels and plates of brass, and the four corners thereof had undersetters. The undersetters here are just the area that would catch the water. Under the labor were undersetters molten. They were metal at the side of every addition. And the mouth of it within the chapter and above was a cubit. And the mouth thereof was round about after the work of the base, a cubit and a half. And also the mouth of it, there were gravings upon the borders, four square, not round. Got to make sure it lets us know that. Under the borders were four wheels. So now we get to these little puppies here. Under it were four wheels. And the axle trees of the wheels were joined to the base. And the height of the wheel was a cubit and a half and a half a cubit. And the work of the wheels was like the work of the chariot wheel. Their axle trees and their knaves and their fellows, he's just saying it's just like a chariot wheel, it's made of metal. 
And there were four undersetters to the four corners of one base, and the undersetters were of the very base itself. Again, just explaining that basically it's like a pot in a box. It's like a pot in a box with the box part to catch the overflow of water, with the outside having all the artwork. Verse 35, and in the top of the base was there a round compass. So now we're dealing with the pot of half a cupid high, and on the top of the base, the ledges thereof and the borders thereof were of the same. For on the plates of the ledges thereof and on the borders thereof, he graved cherubims and lions and palm trees according to the proportion of each one and the additions round about. And after this manner, he made the ten bases. So there were ten of these water carts. All of them had one casting, one measure, and one size. And then made he ten lavers of brass, and so out of the pots. One laver contained 40 baths, so these only held about 800 liters of water. And every laver was four cubits, and upon every one of the ten bases was one laver. And he put five bases on the right side of the house, so five of these water carts on one side of the temple, and the other were on the other side of the temple. Verse 40, and Hiram made the laver, so now we're getting into the brass utensils. Again, I'm going to read through this quickly because I'm, I should be done right now. Hiram made the lavers and the shovels and the basins. So Hiram made an end of doing all the work that he made King Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowls of the chapters were on the top of the two pillars. The two networks to cover the two bowls of the chapters, which were upon the top of the pillars. And 400 pomegranates for the two networks, even two rows of pomegranates for one. I mean, these are all things we've already said. He's just summing it up now. To cover the two bowls of the chapters that were upon the pillars. And 10 water carts and 10 pots on the base of the water carts. And one sea, one big bath, and 12 oxen under the sea. He did all these things. But he also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins, and all the vessels which, King, which Hiram made to King Solomon for the house of the Lord. They were all of bright brass. The shovels would be used to scoop the ashes from the altar, making them here of all polished brass. I do think it's interesting that it mentions that Jesus' legs, when the vision's there, it's of polished brass, and it reflects the fire in his eyes, the fire of judgment. So again, all of this speaks of judgment. Everything outside speaks of judgment. Once you get inside, the metal changes to gold. And so verses 48 through 51, it just mentions all the tools there were gold. Verse 48, and Solomon made all the vessels, the tools that pertained unto the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold, wherein was the showbread, and the candlesticks of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left, were in front of the Holy of Holies, with the flowers and the lamps and the tongs of gold, and the bowls and the snuffers and the basins and the spoons, and the censers of pure gold and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the house, to wit, of the temple, the regular holy place. And so was ended all the work that King Solomon made for the house of the Lord, and Solomon brought in the things which David his father had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and the vessels, did he put among the treasures of the house of the Lord. So again, different than the tabernacle, we don't have one menorah, we have ten. And there's money left over that from what David set aside that he puts in the storehouse. So what's the point? I mean, we had a lot of application here, but what's the point? Well, it brings us back to our theme, covenants and character. In 1 Kings chapter 3, what did God tell Solomon? Because you've not asked for this, this, and this, but you've asked for wisdom to lead this people. I'm going to give you this, this, and this. And one of those was riches. And so here we see God keeping his promise to Solomon. But there's also a reminder in the construction of this temple about our character. He tells Solomon after he's going to give him riches, he says, only make sure that you walk 
in my ways. God is holy. There is no one like him. But we can enter in through the blood of Christ. God kept that promise to Israel because Jesus came eventually. He kept his promise to David too. And so while we don't have particular promises to keep, there is a question, though, am I loving him back by walking in, walking in his ways? Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Oh, Lord, you are beautiful. And Lord, unfortunately, even though we sing that song, your face is all I seek, the truth is, that's not always the case. And so, Lord, we don't want to forsake you. We want to walk in your ways. Lord, not because you'll, you'll pull your presence away from us if we don't, but Lord, because you've done so much for us. And so we commit ourselves to recognizing how holy and distinct you are, that you are worthy of our whole lives. We give them to you tonight in Jesus' name, amen.